Well, hello again. In the next two um, podcasts, basically this one and the next one, I want to talk about some issues uh, that are quite important, I believe, particularly with this particular uh, podcast. And that is the ethical side of wildlife photography. In the next podcast, I plan to talk more about the mistakes people make, but the ethical side is very important. And the reason that I want to talk about it is that as wildlife photographers, and if you do photograph wildlife, um, then I would include you as a wildlife photographer, we can do things that are very be beneficial. We can um, certainly show animals in their natural environment. We can help to raise awareness of the predicament of certain animals. Unfortunately, that's a growing number of them with things like climate change, loss of habitation, all this kind of thing. In fact, the increasing pressures of tourism, at least up until COVID, uh, was definitely a factor. And I'm sure, unfortunately, that's likely to return again. So we are in a position to do good and also to tell stories of conservation and share wins that people have had in terms of working with animals. But on the other hand, there are definitely photographers out there that do things that I would regard as unethical. Now, to some extent, most photographers, I guess, are guilty, but for many of them, they're just not aware of it. it, it these um, ethical mistakes are made because they just uh, don't realise what they're doing or they don't think about it. However, there is also a core of photographers who knowingly um, break ethical boundaries, as it were, and in, in that sense do more damage. So I want to talk about um, eight areas where this happens. Now, this is uh, from, or the basis of this is an article that you can find on featureshoot.com. So that's featureshoot.com. Uh, it was one that I came across on the um, the web, and I thought they made a really good play, uh, case for um, just highlighting uh, the kind of things that some photographers do that um, basically they really shouldn't. And I do want to talk about this. So I'm going to grab, I'm going to use their um, items, if you like, the eight areas, the eight mistakes that people make, but I'm going to just put my own spin on them. So I hope um, I'm not breaking any copyright. <laughs> so let's just dive in. So the first one that they mention is wildlife baiting. Now this is simply where um, food, whether it's um, living food or dead food, put it that way, is put out to encourage a wild animal to come and take the bait and therefore be available to have their photograph taken. Now one of the things with wildlife is that these animals, if you're shooting ethically, if you leave them alone, they'll um, hunt in their own time. So actually getting a picture of uh, certainly a predator catching prey is something that you don't see that often. Certainly in my experience, I've very rarely seen it. There's only two occasions I can think of where I've been there. And one of them, I heard it rather than saw it. So it is quite rare. Some people are fortunate in that they live in these areas, but even so, it's an unusual situation. So what some photographers do, particularly in the tourism industry, is to bait animals so that people can get a shot of um, this particular animal feeding. Now, the reason that that is unethical is that it is causing a change 
in that animal's natural behavior. And really as wildlife photographers, that's what we're interested in, seeing the animals in their own environment, doing their own thing. We're observers. And as far as possible, we should not be interacting with the animal. I mean, you could argue that the very fact that we're there um, does have an impact on the animal's behavior. And I would say that's true. So the responsibility we have is to absolutely minimize the impact that we have on any animal that we photograph. So baiting is definitely something that is very artificial. Yes, it might get a photograph for you. It might encourage people who perhaps don't care. They just want to get a photograph of an animal and are not really interested in the natural life of that animal and the situation of that animal. That's something that you can use, but I, I would say that is definitely something that I stand against. Um, a second point that they make is um, use of flash. Now, I never use flash when I am photographing animals, and um, obviously you would tend to use flash in situations of low light or maybe at night. And just think about it for a moment. Those animals that are active at night are active because they've got very sensitive eyesight. You pop a flash in front of them, just think of the damage that you're potentially doing to them. You're certainly going to startle prey, you're going to do damage to the, the predator animal if it's that kind of a situation, but you may also damage their eyes and cause temporary blindness, that kind of thing. So I would say never ever use flash gun when you're photographing wild animals. Um, that's just a rule that I have and I think that's very important. Now, geotagging is another point they raise. Now, this is less to do with the actual taking of the photograph, although you can turn your um, geolocation off. So what I mean by geotagging is giving the um, longitude, latitude, or location of where the particular photograph was shot. So that can be turned off in most cameras, and I would recommend that, honestly because I've certainly been in situations where there are endangered animals such as rhino, and I've specifically been asked not to share exactly where we are. Um, I've also done that with elephants as well in the wild when I've been tracking them. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is to stop poaching because obviously a lot of these animals, and I've mentioned rhinos and elephants, they are already endangered and poaching is a major factor. And the other thing that will happen is that a lot of people, these particularly Instagram influencers or in, people who want to make a name for themselves as influencers in the wildlife kind of environment will find where these locations are and go down there. And then all of a sudden, instead of being a fairly hidden location or relatively unknown location, uh, there's just lots and lots of people going along there. And obviously that sudden increase in the number of people in a location will have an impact on the animals. I'm going to talk about um, some aspects of that uh, now, in fact, to go on to that as the next one. So I would, I'll generally talk about a general area, um, but I won't give specific details of the location where I'm shooting these animals. So the fourth point they made is getting too close. Now, this is something I have seen. I know it goes on. It's something I'm very strongly against. And I've seen, certainly in um, uh, in Tanzania, I remember in the Serengeti seeing a driver of a tourist bus driving very, very close, almost on top of um, a lion that was lying in the bush 
and trying to sleep and this driver decided he wanted to get the best possible view for his um, guests who were armed with massive lenses anyway and um, got to the point where the, he drove in so close the line got up and moved away but clearly that is stressed, stressing for the animal it's not a healthy thing to do I, I, I mean there it's just something that to me I, I would not even consider doing it will alter their natural behavior as well because if a lot of these animals some predators like lions they tend to be more active at dawn or dusk or even at night but during the day a lot of them will not be doing very much it's when they sleep it's when they rest it's when they try and stay out of the heat so having somebody in a truck or a four-wheel drive driving right up to them is incredibly intrusive and it will have an effect on that animal in fact one of the national parks i went to in india so this was a park called karna where i photographed tigers one of the things they did, they actually closed the park on Wednesday afternoons. And one of the ideas behind that was to just give the animals, as well as everybody else, a bit of a break from um, all of the tourists coming through and people looking at the, uh, the animals. So I like to get close shots, but I do it by being a fair distance when using a long lens. And this is where understanding the capabilities of your own equipment will come in. And one story I will share, in fact, I was in Kana with a, a small group. There were um, three of us, three photographers in a, a small four-wheel drive. We'd been listening to some alarm calls and we were actually on our own on a track when a, a tiger came out of the bush behind us, probably 50 metres, 40, 50 metres behind us and walked across the road. Now, we all had long lenses and we immediately just set up our shot and we're ready to shoot but the driver put the car in reverse and immediately floored it to get in close and we were just screaming at him to stop and it blew the shot and by the time he had stopped and we got ourselves together the tiger was disappearing into the bush on the other side of the road but he was used to people with smartphones or ipads and stuff like that which just these are not if you're serious about taking wildlife get yourself some decent equipment and that's what we had because it allows you to stay well back from the animal and still get some great shots and then you can further work on them in post-processing you might choose to crop in uh, smaller one of my my main camera is um, a canon eos 5ds which has a very large sensor it's full frame sensor 50 meg sensor and that means that any photograph i take using the full um pixel count if you like of that sense because I can change the size of the uh, the image but anything I take with the full sensitivity of the camera I can generally crop in and still get a very good resolution on that image so do think about that and I think that's very important um, one, one good way of getting close although for most of us it's not an option we have but it's to use camera traps without bait but a lot of parks set up camera traps and these are just cameras that are set up um, along routes that animals will use typically um, uh, at night or dawn and dusk but also during the day in fact in um, Zimbabwe where I was there um, the people with the camera traps got some great photographs of leopards and I didn't see any leopards but the I suppose irritating thing educational thing about that whole situation was that one set of photographs were taken of the leopard just before we went down this particular um, piece of road 
And there was another picture of the leopard taken just after we'd passed. So clearly he had heard us coming, or she had heard us coming, had taken, gone into cover because we never saw it, and then wandered back out again when we'd gone. So camera traps are very powerful, but for most of us, they're not an option, but they are certainly a very ethical and a good way of getting great uh, close-ups of um, particularly the more elusive animals. Okay, the fifth thing they've spoken about is not doing your homework. Now, um, I like to research the main animals that I plan to go and see. So at the moment, I'm, um, I'm preparing for a trip to Uganda to see uh, primarily mountain gorillas, but also chimpanzees. So I'm doing a bit of research on um, uh, their range, where they are, how to interact with them, if, if that happens, which often does on the, well, often when they, when people are lucky enough to get close to them, uh, there is um, interaction, but that's really a bonus. But just understanding how that all works. But education goes beyond that. It's also understanding the, understanding the environment that they're in as well to make sure you don't damage their natural environment. Um, there's a, a great quote. I just popped it on the other sheet, but I wanted to use it. I don't know who, who came up with this, but it's one that I really like. And it says, take nothing but photographs, leave nothing but footprints, and kill nothing but time. And I think that's a very good way of um, approaching wildlife photography because particularly today with the number of endangered species we have, it's, it's really important that we respect not only the animals, but the environment that they're in. Okay, number six is visiting game farms. Now I differentiate these from um, game reserves. So game farms are where animals are bred, but they're generally bred for hunters or for entertainment or for something else, which I personally find um, very unethical anyway. Um, they're certainly bred for profit though. That's the point about these particular locations. Now I've been in private game reserves, but the one of the ways I like to um, get my animal photographs is also to volunteer with different conservation projects. And uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is it does give you access to animals that normal tourists often don't get. But secondly, it's really good for education because you see firsthand what's going on um, in, in conservation. And each of the, these reserves tend to focus on different things. So if I talk about a private game, res uh, private game reserve, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a game farm, which I find unethical. Um, there are arguments made for culling animals and all this sort of thing, and they, they on a case-by-case -case basis, there may well be a case for culling animals at certain times. It's something I've spoken about in other podcasts, but I do not go along with the idea of game farms. Um, the other reason for using uh, getting involved with a conservation project is that you can get an awful not a lot of knowledge from conservationists and also how they've changed their view on how best to proceed with different animals. And I've also spoken about this particularly um, in a, a podcast I did about the Nakavango uh, conservation program in uh, Zimbabwe. Okay, point number seven they make, um, so this is featureshoot.com. They talk about staging photographs. Now these are essentially fake scenes. So um, this can be done in a number of ways. Sometimes it's um, you know putting some one animal on top of another one in a way it wouldn't normally happen. It might involve clearing some of the um, uh, the environment, the foliage or whatever's around to get a better shot. But it's basically setting the shot up. And the reason that I object to this, there's several of them. One is that, as I've already said, you get habitat destruction. Um, 
if, if you're doing it that way, if you're removing certain plants or whatever it might be to get a particular shot, this is, and you've got to remember, this is not a studio shoot. You're out in the wild. You want to, this really should be a shot that somebody else could see if they went to the same place. Nothing staged, nothing set up. Um, another aspect is it, it can result in animal cruelty, and it, it does. And, and finally, you know, nature's pretty amazing anyway. If you, if you are interested in wildlife photography and if you're thinking about going on um, a trip to see animals, I mean, nature's just amazing. I, I'm always blown away by places, places like Africa or the beauty of the forest in India or, or um, the, the amazing outback in Australia, but these places are just stunning, and each of them have their own form of beauty. So to my mind at least, there is absolutely no reason to start trying to fake a shot. Every and certainly, I believe, certainly every photograph I take is shot as it happens. So um, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. It's whatever happens, and I'll talk more about that in the uh, the next podcast. And the final thing they've raised is the um, the idea of anthropomorphizing. <laughs> Try saying that after a couple of beers, but essentially what, what I mean by that is assigning human emotions to um, an image. So if you've got a picture of an animal hunting, you can see that, that it's hunting, or if it's scared, you can see that it's scared, you know, if it's in a, some sort of defensive posture. These are natural um, behaviors of that particular animal. But when you start talking, and, and some people do this when they're writing up about images or talking about images, they talk about animals being in love or they're jealous or they're praying or they're doing some other kind of human behavior. We don't know that. We don't know what's going on for these animals. And in a way, it undermines the educational aspect of wildlife photography. So where I can, and um, certainly with the photographs that I sell, I usually write a short story, um, not a paragraph or two at most, about where I shot that animal, potentially what it was doing, and I might throw in some background information about that particular animal that I've learned through doing my research. But what I'm trying to do is, if someone is interested enough to look at the photograph, I'd like to give them a little bit of background about what was going on when I took it, and maybe some fact about that animal that they weren't aware of. And I think um, one of the things that always amazes me is the more that you start looking into the background of um, different animals. I'm always learning something new about about animals, even quite common ones. Okay, so that is really this podcast, and I thought it was important to talk a bit about the ethics. One other thing that I will mention, which is a very important part of what I do with my wildlife photographs, um, so f first of all, they are all natural. That's That's the very first thing. None of them are the result of the, the sort of ethical issues that I've mentioned. Um, secondly, I put normally 10%, but more if I can, of the proceeds from my photography sales back into specific wildlife projects. And you can find out more about those in the catalogue that I, I have available for my work. Uh, one of them at the moment is um, the African desert elephants in Namibia. So there's a project looking after them and conserving them. And the other one is a project in Australia um, half cut, which is um, looking at essentially buy up chunks of rainforest so it can't be redeveloped. So they're the two projects I'm involved with and contributing money to at the moment, but I do hope to um, add to those as time goes on. So I hope you've enjoyed that and found it interesting, and I will speak to you next time. Bye for now. 
Just before I go, I wanted to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is some information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now.